June 19, 1983. Recording the 11th Annual Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. This is tape number six. Uh, what I'm going to do is very simple. I'll introduce everybody. Uh, then I'm going to pose one major question. And after we all answer it, we'll open for questions, which seems to work best. And we all would love to answer any questions you have. Um, let's see, first, I got, I haven't done. On my left, Sue Grafton. Sue started writing straight novels. She wrote two. Publi that is, published two. Is that right? Yeah. The second one sold screenplay. That took her to Hollywood to write the screenplay. She's been writing in Hollywood as a screenwriter and TV writer for the last 10 years. Um, she originated the adaptation of the TV series Nurse. She has just recently adapted two Agatha Christie novels. About a year, about a year ago mm -hmm. or two, One. about a year ago, she decided to join the rest of us and wrote a mystery novel called A is for Alibi featuring a private detective named Kinsey Milhone. Right. On my right is Brian Garfield. Brian is a present president of the Mystery Writers of America. There are those who say Brian doesn't write mysteries directly. He writes mostly suspense novels, but he has written ones that are called mysteries. He's written many books, such as The Hit and The Three-Person Hunt, I think, are both mysteries, I would call them. In a way. To it. Yeah, in a way. Uh, Three-Person Hunt, he even has series characters. That is one that has a detective named Sam Watchman, who is a part Navajo, member of the Arizona uh, State Troopers. His most famous books are probably Hopscotch, uh, Death and Death Wish, both of which were made into movies. Brian did the screenplay for Hopscotch himself, which took him to Hollywood, where he's been writing screenplays ever since, and novels. Um, he's written, here's the other one up here particularly, who's written under many pseudonyms. Most of his pseudonyms are in Western, right? Yeah, most of the pseudonyms are in the Western field. He has written under many names and has written many, many books on many subjects. Um, Next, uh, next on my left is William Campbell Galt. Bill wanted me particularly to say that tomorrow is the 47th anniversary of his first sale of a short story. 47 years ago tomorrow, he sold his first short story. This was to the Pulps. This is the days when a writer could make a living writing short stories. Actually, he could, mystery short stories. Since then, he's written 300, published 300 short stories and 61 books. Uh, about halfway split, probably, between mysteries and juveniles. His most famous character is a detective named Brock Callahan. He had a second one named Joe Puma. Recently, Bill went back to writing mysteries at a place called Raven House which I did too, and which is now no longer in existence, much to our regret, both of us. Probably our fault. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but what interested me particularly that uh, Bill did was that in about the second, was it, when he dipped Joe Puma and killed him off and had Brock Callahan solve the crime. So he has only one detective <laughs> left alive, Brock Callahan. Uh, now down here on my right is our newest one, Tiona Tone has published her Tiana, first mystery. It's Tiana. Tiana. All right. <laughs> I can't pronounce it. Tiana Tone has published her first mystery, 
It's called Lady on the Line. There it is. Have it out in the lobby. Uh, being her first mystery, actually first novel. We have to say what else. Tiona's a PhD in 19th century British and American literature. She's written articles for New West, Westways, and other magazines. And perhaps most important, she's a former lady detective herself. Uh, as a matter of fact, the most interesting thing, well, not the most interesting, but one interesting thing about this is that it takes place in 1899, and the, the detective is a lady. And uh, Tiona has told me she's going to write one about another lady detective who will be the same one's granddaughter. Let me get to it. And finally, the late comer on my left, I don't really have to look it up, is Charlie Smith Deal. If you're here last, you know, Charlie is a plastic surgeon. Uh, published last year, two years ago, I guess, but certainly the last conference, had just published his first mystery novel, suspense novel, called Pain, and has since sold and recently did the copy editing, I presume, and his second one still called Stillborn, I believe. We're still... Uh, still negotiating. Yes. I don't know, I think of all the titles we kicked around, I think, for about the whole year, Stillborn seemed to be the best. And they are medical, and they're very interesting medical mysteries. Okay. Oh, myself. <laughs> Modestly, he said. I'll do that part. <laughs> no, you won't. You can have some prerogatives here. Uh, my name is Dennis Linz. I write mainly under the name of Michael Collins, although I have also written as Mark Sadler, John Crow, William Arden, Carl Decker, and a few others. I write essentially in the mystery suspense field. I have written some straight novels, and I write short stories that are not mysteries. I also write mystery short stories. Um, Okay, so that's all of us. Now, the question I wanted to pose to everybody here is very simple. Why did everyone on this panel decide or pick to write suspense mystery novels or stories? What made us decide to pick that particular field? What do we see as the advantages of that field that made us pick it, and how well have they served us? Um, well, I think I'll start with Brian. Good right. grief. Yep, <laughs> I figured you'd be right. Um, I wrote about 30 westerns, mostly in paperback, none of which sold very well. Found that suspense fiction sold a lot better than westerns did, and so started in that genre. That's the frivolous answer. The serious answer is I always liked reading suspense fiction, and I finally belatedly decided that you should write what you like to read. Okay. Thanks. So, um, is this on? No. Oh, I'll do it this way. Makes me feel like, this makes me feel like a singer, right? I'm holding the microphone. Uh, my father was a mystery novelist back in the 40s. He had two books, uh, two mysteries published then that are now in uh, reprint. And he then devoted himself to law practice. But I did grow up with a writer, and he taught me a lot about writing. And when I finally got into the field, started as a straight novelist, ended up working down in Tinseltown. But during the course of the screenplay and teleplay writing that I was doing, I, I kept having people say to me, well, you do character well, but you're not very strong on plot. So finally I decided that I would have to take care of that, and it seemed to me that the best way to learn plotting was to do detective fiction, because it was the one place you couldn't cheat. I think one of the beauties of detective fiction is that there is a story there, it's strong, and it moves fast, and it's generally engaging. So I, I got into the field primarily to teach myself how to do plot, and I still can't do it, but I'm struggling with it. And I, I love it a lot. Um, 
I also think it's exciting because it's the one field in which the reader and the writer are pitted against each other. You know, it is your reader's job to figure out the story uh, and your job to prevent him from doing it while playing fair throughout the whole course of the book. And that just seems like fun. It seems like a chess game. So that's more or less why I'm in it. Okay. Bill? Oh, uh, I started in the pulps years ago. I don't know how many people remember the pulps. They died about 19, what, 53? Somewhere in there, yeah. I guess there are pulps left. That would be Ellery Queen and Hitchcock and Mike Shane and who else? Anyone else? That's about Not it. Not many. In but I was writing sports, and it was strange in those days. Uh, magazines have 30, 30 different magazines coming out one month, and two months later there'd be 12. So I shifted over to both, to mysteries and to uh, the sports stories. And then I, about 1950, which is long after I'd started in the business, uh, all those magazines fold. I sold three, three stories that started being posted, but I don't, think, I don't think it's possible to make a living. I guess Ray Bradbury does it. Very few people can make a living writing short stories. He's probably the only one I... Ed Hoke. Yeah, Hoke. About the only one, I don't know how. And then he gets a lot of reruns. Yeah, a lot of reruns. If, if you can sell a lot to Europe, a lot of your short stories to Europe, I think you can do it. Uh, I read somewhere that the average freelance fiction writer today makes $5,200 a year. So it's not, if you don't love it, get the hell out. Because there's no other reason to stay in it unless you, want to, unless you get famous, of course. And it's nice. But anyway, uh, then in 63, I noticed that my what they call young adult fiction, I still call it juvenile fiction. Who the hell wants to be an adult anyway? And I shifted because they're averaging about three times the same income. My first book, one, the Edgar, 1952, first, best first, and it was out of print in four months. I wrote a thing called Thunder Road that same year, a juvenile which went out of print in 1977. So one thing about juveniles, they were then. Now boys aren't reading today like they were. Uh, they stay in print, which is a very nice thing to have. It's just like dividends. Every six months, you get that money from those juveniles. And if you've got a good agent, you can sell them in Europe, too. But when they, uh, lately, when they stopped writing, I sold 33 juveniles in a row to Dunrod, even changing the title. And all of a sudden, I'm right down to shoot. So I went back to the mystery field and sold a couple to Raven House, which is a Harlequin thing. I knew they wouldn't stay in business because they can't sell like those romances. Nothing sells like those things. And so I sold them four real quick. And they published two, and I got my rights reverted to the others. And I think I'll sell them in New York. And uh, I can't think of anything more to say. Okay. Diana? I think, I think for me, um, it was the plotting, the idea of the mental engagement involved in writing and reading uh, mystery novels. I love Dorothy Sayers. I loved Agatha Christie. And I found in them the same kind of excitement that I found in 19th century novels with extravagant plots. And uh, I noticed that uh, just about everybody reads detective stories, reads mysteries, no matter what level of, of education or, or um, non-education. Everybody enjoys them because they're fun. There is that mental engagement between the, the reader and the writer, as Sue said. And, uh, I have fun writing them as well as reading them. Thank you. Charlie? <clears throat> well, I was going to give a frivolous answer first and say that the uh, average income of a plastic surgeon is something over 100000 a year. And <laughs> it's not I, frivolous. I read that uh, the average income of a writer was 
150, 200 a year as it built. It's actually about 43, I think. I was tired of tax problems. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think Brian said partly what I wanted to say, that uh, I enjoy reading mysteries. That's my escape reading, uh, and it's the first thing I'll grab when I have a few minutes is a, is a good mystery, a good suspense novel. Uh, I think any novel without suspense is not much of a novel, frankly. Uh, I, I have a curious mind. I think all of us do. Uh, I've always asked myself questions of what if, in medicine particularly. We're always looking for new treatments, new cures, uh, new operations. What if we could do this, what would happen? And as escape reading was my mystery reading, my escape writing became mystery writing in the field that I knew, which happened to be medicine. So I like to fantasize, and my first novel, very frankly, was pure fantasy. Uh, I wanted to, gosh, wouldn't it be kind of neat if a plastic surgeon, you know, had done this and this happened, and then he got called in on a case because nobody else could solve it, and that was my first one. Um, one of my favorites. It never got published, uh, but it got finished, and I loved the process of writing it, so I went on. Thank you, Charlie. Um, my is this working now? You can all hear me fine? I feel funny with it, uh, without it in my hand. Uh, I have a little advantage on everyone else since I knew the question before I gave anyone else the question. Uh, but I agree, Charlie, I think, hit something very important in it, that all novels are, after all, suspense novels. Practically. I think anyone, no matter how it's written or who writes it, it is essentially a suspense novel. It's only our uh, tremendous love of categorization, I think, that puts us down into mysteries, suspense, this kind of mystery, that kind of mystery, and so on. But you do have, because publishers like to uh, categorize, it's one reason that we have genre forms, I think. For myself, I think I went into it for about three reasons. The first was, it seemed to me, the surest way to make a living. As I said, I said, we are writers, we're not necessarily smart. <laughs> uh, it proved to be a sure way to make a bad living, something of that nature. Um, mysteries are very interesting compared to others. If you think you're going to write a mystery novel and be a success overnight, you won't be. There's almost no way. It's something that builds up slowly. It, you have to build an audience, your own audience and all that. It's, uh, they're a very discriminating audience, and they're not that large. If you want to make an instant hit, write a historical romance, or what is called a bestseller, and exactly what that means, I don't know, but it's very large, usually. <laughs> a very fat book, uh, something of that nature. That's the only way you're going to get an overnight. I don't know if Martin Cruz Smith is in the room or not. He probably isn't, but he'll tell you. He was an overnight success that took about 30 years or something like that in the mystery field. Um, the Pulps, as, as uh, Bill said the pulps were great in their day for starting, for keeping you alive, too. Giving you a fair to, mid, fair to middling living. You could sell one story and live a good month, maybe more, in those days on it. Now, of course, it's ridiculous. Um, but we do have them today. We have our version of pulps. They're called Lancer, uh, Manor, Tower, Belmont. Even up to Ace Charter and things like that. These are small publishing houses. They pay you 2,000 bucks, maybe a little more, and that's it. You will write a full novel for that. But it's there. If you can write the novel in a month, you're not making a bad living. If you can write it in three weeks, you're doing fine. If you can write it in two, you're doing better. And almost all of us have, well, not every, everyone has different ways, but Bill, Brian, and I, I think, of all three have done this kind of thing one way or another at one time or another, in one field or another. 
The Westerns have a lot of those, too. Um, these, these publishers are there, and you can make a living going into that field. So while I was wrong in the idea that I could go into the mystery field to make a comfortable and easy living while I was writing my better books, of course, uh, I was right in the sense that eventually I make a fair living at it. Sometimes even better. After about 20 years, you can do very well. But it takes time. You have to build up an audience. But it's a tough, the last thing, you know, the matter of craft is important. You can't fool good mystery readers. We have worse ones out there now than we used to have. I think worse than they were in the pulps. The pulp readers were pretty discriminating, although, again, it's acquired an aura of age. If you go back and look at some of the old pulps, they're not that great, really. They're very, very poorly written. There were a few very good writers and a lot of very bad writers. And the same thing occurs with the Lancer, Belmont Tower, Manor, people who publish. They, they will publish the book, and they say, you never see anything else, you get the advance, and that's it. Um, they're there. Uh, that audience is sometimes not that good, but generally, as you get a little higher up, it's a discriminating audience, and it makes you right. It really does. You put you on your medal. You better learn how to plot. You better learn how to write well. You better learn how to use words. So it's a good training, too. The second reason I think I went into it and picked my particular field well, second is, the second reason is because I, too, had been reading Hammond Chandler and those, and I loved them, and I wanted to be like them. I had written some short stories, the precise one. I wrote one short story, published it. The, mag the owner of the magazine wanted me to then to ghostwrite his main writer, and that's how I got into mystery writing. Actually, I ended up ghostwriting 88 stories for the unnamed author. Uh, but it gets you there, and you, can live, you live on it while you're supposedly doing other things. The third reason I think I went into the mystery, and particularly picked the private eye, is some very personal to me, but private detective novel is written in the first person. Uh, the first person, in case you don't know it, is one, one remove from the reader and actually from the writer. It's detached. It is, how, how do you, by convention, it is the man himself telling his own story. Therefore, it's a marvelous chance to observe, comment, pontificate, uh, say what you damn well please about the country, the world, and the life. And that's what I wanted to do. So I picked it up and I did. Uh, for me, that particular field was very good. It gave me a chance to observe exactly what I wanted to observe about the country and that kind of thing. Okay, anyone have any other comments? Huh? Okay, any questions? Yeah, one thing I was uh, thinking, uh, I think, uh, and I've told this before, but I think that's what, why Hammett could help Lillian Hellman, and he did, because he couldn't nearly write nearly as well as she did, but he knew where the garbage was. When you're writing a pulp, you learn where the garbage is because you're dealing with it for the first 15 or 20 years. And I think that he helped her tighten. And Adora Welty said, why she, wasn't Adora Welty who admires Ross McDonald? Yeah, yeah. That she wished she could write mysteries because you had to have construction. She writes theme stories generally, not plot stories. But she admires people who can put a logical sequence of events together into a puzzle and with some social comment on the way, as he says, which I think all the good mystery writers did, even in the pulps, oh. the good ones, especially Chandler. So it, it tightens your writing. It avoids the florid writing, the Victorian writing, all the pretentious writing. Mm -hmm. And it teaches you the good old Anglo-Saxon prose, which we grew up with. And I think uh, if you want to go on from there, like many did, it's a good way to start, and it's a good way to learn discipline because you can't bullshit them, you know. You have to stay logically sequential unless you're Agatha Christie or something. <laughs>
Very good. Thank you, Bill. All right, we'll throw it open to questions. Uh, please make address your question to either the whole panel, in which case I'll assign it, or to someone in specifically, and we'll repeat the questions. All right, one here. Uh, which two, me and Bill and, and yeah. Brian, who's been at it. Uh, for me, it's very difficult to say. I've never found it down. Oh. <laughs> oh, boy. It's going to be hard to remember. Um, the lady has been told the mystery field has been down over about the last five or ten years and is now coming back up, and she wanted us to comment on it. I've been told over the whole time I've been writing mysteries, which is only since about 60, since 67, uh, that it's no, that it's down, and they don't want to publish. Particularly, the private detective novel is down. I don't know. I've published them over the years. I've published 29 of them in that period of time. Uh, I'd say it's not great. It clearly, the market, as far as I've seen, has never been as great as it was, say, back when uh, Ken Miller and some of us were more or less by themselves. There's a lot of people in the field right now. Um, but they do. One house stops publishing, another one picks it up. That's all I can say. It's in my comment, it seems to me to be hanging in there. Whether it's much better or much worse, I can't tell. Brian, how about you? I don't know. I, I always have difficulty in discussing yeah. trends. Uh, I don't think there are any, really. I, I think trends tend to be a manifestation of, of imitation. Uh, you know, there is a trend for science fiction movies because there's one good science fiction movie that becomes a success in the marketplace. And for the next couple of years, everybody wants science fiction movies, but the movies that get made are usually pretty bad. And I think the same is true, particularly with the private eye genre, to limit the discussion to that part of, of crime fiction. There are an awful lot of third-rate private eye books being published. Uh, I don't think they're finding a big market. I don't think they're making a lot of money for their authors in that sense. No, it's not a terribly good market. On the other hand, it means that there's more room for the beginning writer who hasn't worked all the bugs out of his craft yet to get a little on-the-job training and get paid for it. So I, I don't think it's altogether a bleak situation. Okay. Very often the, the market, though, are in these small houses I've been telling you about, and they are not very good writers very often, but they're getting published. And if you write better than that, and you will luck, go to the better house and do much better. Bill, what would you say? Uh, I've never understood. I've never... Uh, Boucher, the old New York Times critic, who they have a conference in his name every year, the only book I ever... He gave me pretty good reviews, and the only one I ever made money on was one he said I should have written under a pseudonym. It was so bad. Well, it's hard. I can write bad. I've done it. But it's hard to write badly enough. Uh, it's hard to write as bad as Sidney Sheldon. And, uh, <laughs> that, that takes work. It is, or Jack was saying. Uh, I don't rap them. I'm for all writers. But I knew at Ravenhouse that they're going to compare those damn things with these romantics. And at one time, 50% of all things were romantics. And... And Harlequin had 80% of that business until they was, got smart-ass and went over and told uh, Simon Schuster, I think was distributing for them, that they, they're going to do their own distribution. And they market, their market went down. Now we have silhouette romances and candlelight romances and new American romances and all that stuff. When I was in the pulps, I tried to sell Daisy Bacon. It's a love story, a love story thing. And I finally wrote to her. I said, I can't do this. What's wrong with me? And she says, you're not a woman. 
<laughs> well, I thought Jean Frances Webb was very big in that field, and I thought that must be a woman. I found out only, well, 50 years later, I found he wasn't, because he wrote to me from New York just a couple months ago. <laughs> so it's difficult to find... The first time Mickey Spillane's book, I happened to know, came into Dutton, the editor, a man named Raiden, I forget his first name, said this is a very bad book, but better buy it very quickly. And they bought it. And he has now been in 152 languages. So this is not just an American phenomenon, you know. This is universal. This assumption that Americans are all rednecks is not true. We're even bigger in France, some of us. And uh, so uh, who's to say what's universal? I see Leslie Fiedler the other day was, not the other day, the other year, was talking about people who put words in the language. Well, Tarzan's in the language. Does that mean the writer was one of the great ones of all time? There are certain words in the language. Sinclair Lewis put Main Street in the language, so that's not the thing. And if you go by universality, then certain mysteries, certainly like John D. MacDonald, Ross MacDonald, I don't know if Ross MacDonald sells that well. He sells to a much more discriminating clientele than either John D. or Mickey Spillane. So I can't say, I know that it was always like they used to be able to make a movie for a half a million dollars. So if they could get $600,000 out of it, they'd make a living. So I learned earlier, I've read it, William Sproyan said it, I think if you can't learn to write well, you must learn to write fast. And uh, <laughs> this is not only true of bad writers. Simon Yen, is that the way it's pronounced, Simon Yen? Simonin, I think. Simonin wrote 200 novels between the time he was 20 and the time he was 30 which averages out to 20 a year. That's a lot. And Voltaire wrote Candide, I understand, in 48 hours. So yeah. they're not all bad. And there's a certain flow that comes from fast writing. I know it sounds like hack work. There's a certain, when you get that coffee urge going, there's a certain flow that comes from it. And I've read some of my early books and they're raw. But the fiber was, I mean, the fire was there, you see? Because you're, you're trying and you're there and you do it. I wrote it in 28 days, the one that won the award been going downhill ever since, but uh, I'm still alive and I'm eating. And, and still writing mysteries and still selling. I got back to them too, yes. Yeah. Anyone else want to comment on the, the idea of the mystery market today, how good or how bad it is? I, it's a cliche, but I think there's always a market for a book if it's good enough. Right. Right. Or bad enough. Right. Again, things like yeah. the, the idea of the market up, market down, I don't know. It seems to be the province of people who are not writers, but who want, who want to categorize again, who want to, they want to have to write copy for the newspapers or something like this. I'm not sure whether what they know. All I know is the one thing that has always struck me is as one house leaves, another house picks it up. You will see one house has decided they'll never take mysteries again, and then along comes St. Martin's and taking everything. So you just don't know. It's their decision. It's not mine. All I do is write the books. But so far, so good. One more thing that I say? Yeah, go ahead. You've got to remember, too, that when your story goes into this editor, he may have had a fight with his wife that morning. The subway may have been late, some dumb thing. I read, I don't know how true it is, that Annie Mayne and the guy was in the business, drinking with these people, went to 17 publishers. Now, it may be a good book, a bad book, but it sure as hell was going to be a successful book. Anybody should have known that. So the fact that one person turned you down, has one editor, is his judgment, not necessarily yours. And then maybe another editor you can find it's a blood brother or blood sister. So the big thing is to be stubborn. The people I grew up with in Milwaukee, I would say at least half of them were better than I was when we had this writer's club in Milwaukee. But they didn't stay with it. Mm -hmm. What was good about those days, writers made $2,000 a year. 
And people who went to work made $2,000 a year. And that's where you got the Hemingways and the Fitzgeralds and that gang. But today, a guy who leaves college and goes out to $25,000, $30,000 a year, and your writer's still making $2,000 a year. So there's no reason to write. Well, if you're going to be a writer, you don't need a reason. You're going to be a writer. That's it. And to hell with the rest of it. Again, what Bill in the way, and we're all saying, is this, this um, say a, pub a publisher decides not to publish mysteries, he, doesn't, he does it from very, he does it because a computer tells him, or this or that, and that. he doesn't really know. He's only making a guess. Uh, and even though he's made that decision, if he gets a book in that he knows is going to be a seller and happens to be a mystery, it will change his opinion. He's not going to stick to that uh, fiat, that simply. It's a matter very often of personal judgment. We all have our horror stories of the mistakes both ways. Mine is that I knew a, had a good friend in New York who was a reader for an outfit and she read a book and turned to tell them to turn it down. It was far too depressing. It was the diary of Anne Frank. So she didn't keep that job very much longer. Well, one more thing. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, rather in the mystery, I mean in the publishing world, when these people go to their cocktail party, they never mention their juvenile division. Now, I want you to know that that's a good field. It's changing now. It's a lot more open than it was. It's not for me because I was writing for boys and boys have quit reading, but girls are still reading. And they talk about bestsellers. You've never seen a juvenile on the bestseller list, but I'll give you 10 to 1, anybody wants to bet, that the top 10 bestsellers of all time have been juveniles. The last I saw in Raggedy Ann, it's been 152 million in hardcover. Now these guys have had a million sale or two million. That's peanuts compared to that kind of sale. So, but the, they can't talk about these books. Not over a martini, it looks small. But there is a, that's a field, <laughs> and it's big. You okay. can imagine what A. E. Milne made on yeah. the... Well, there also is a category of juvenile mystery, by the way, which does very yeah. well. Does very well. A lot of them are factory-made, though. Some are, yeah. some are. Okay, yeah. Question. Yeah, okay. First question, there one. Not you, okay? repeat the question. Um, the lady said that she doesn't like to spend a lot of time with Raymond Chandler's character, Philip Marlowe, finds that he's too grim and so on, and how do we, uh, presumably in the mystery field, create a main character, which in many cases is the investigator, uh, with whom somebody wants to spend the entire evening? Um, anyone want to feel that? Gorky Park was a huh? mystery, huh? and a lot of people stayed with that a long time. You can reach at any level in that field, you know. I think the answer, what Bill again is saying, and my answer, I'll agree, is that uh, you may not be a mystery reader. I'm afraid it's the closest, because when you read a mystery, you're going to have fairly grim things going on. Uh, to me, spending the night with Chandler is far better than almost any other books I've read. I think Philip Marlowe was a marvelous character, very interesting and very entertaining. Um, you see, the fact that he, Marlowe, uh, Chandler, Hammett, 
McDonald, I hope myself, I hope uh, Brian, a few others are maybe not quite as glib, so therefore we're a little harder to read than some. All good books are hard, a little bit hard to read. Um, you do your best in making the character as human as you can. I think that's all I can say. And to deal with problems, the problems he comes up with, accurately, honestly, humanly, and interestingly. Uh, you can't, uh, I can't give you any formula for that. Yeah. Oh, I can't even give you an idea, since I consider both Chandler and Sam Spade very nice fellows. Yeah, but they were also from yeah. a different era. And, right. I, and I think if you were creating a detective in this day and age, you would have a different set of problems. Uh, from my suspicion is that the eye character in a private detective novel is a very strong version of the writer. So, in effect, you put yourself on the page. And what makes that scary is that I think a lot of us don't want to be that vulnerable. I mean, to do a whole novel with an eye character, you always have to say to yourself, am I being too smart-alecky? Am I intruding too much? Am I editorializing too much in the narrative? Am I irritating the reader? And, and you really have no way to, do, to, to evaluate that until you get to an editor who says, you know, this section's too long, uh, whatever. Uh, you just fly by the seat of your pants for the most part. Okay. Well, Agatha Christie was writing the British mystery, and uh, uh, I would suggest, I don't know if you can get a copy of it, but uh, Mr. Chandler, I agree with him on uh, British mysteries. It's called The Simple Art of Murder. Read that, and then you'll see the distinction. I can never understand Agatha Christie. For instance, in uh, Orient Express, whatever it was, I don't know who killed whom, because I'm sure 12, <laughs> 12 people would certainly not put a knife into a corpse. In a way that so the whole thing is absurd, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, in a, in a way, that's what I was saying, that there, is, there are differences. You may sense. not be a fan of the American mystery, that's all, as compared with, I can't read Agatha Christie. Read The Simple of Art and Murder, well, that, yeah. and repent. Yeah, I think, I think that... Fiona wants to have a shot at it, as the newest one. <laughs> yes, I think the type of character that you're referring to that you don't like uh, was dubbed by one author that I read, The Hard-Boiled Dick. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Freudian symbol symbolism aside, that that is a hard character to like, intentionally so. But there are many other detective novels that have perfectly likable hero her heroes or heroines. And uh, I tried to create a 19th century lady who uh, is kind of thrust into the, into the role and uh, takes it up because she likes doing it in the end, but is in the end a lady. And uh, in the tradition of, of, I think, Agatha Christie and uh, a number, number of other 19th century ladies who were writers but wrote in the genre. Dennis, I might comment, yeah. if I wait, may, on that uh, too, Peggy, just quickly. I think as writers, uh, we have to be less concerned with the, how many readers are, are going to identify with or like to spend an evening with our characters as much as, because it is an extension of ourselves, as a writer, do I enjoy spending an evening with, or a month with, or six months with my character? 
And if I do, and I enjoy his company, I don't really give a damn whether you do or not. <laughs> I've enjoyed the writing process, <coughs> and hopefully, if it sells, and if people do like it, then that's the bonus. You have to find your own audience, really. Yeah. People like you that like what you like. Yeah. You're not going to please everybody. Except I'm Ronnie, he pleases everybody. Right. <laughs> I'd like to, uh, I don't know if this is opening a can of worms that nobody else wants opened, but there is, to me, a great distinction between detective fiction and other kinds of mystery suspense fiction. And one of my problems in, in, with the detective story, and I think your question brings this up, is the fact that, to me, the detective story has always been rather artificial in the sense that the main character is not involved in the story. He's an outsider trying to figure out what happened to other people. And I've always been much more comfortable with stories in which things were happening to the main character, and that character, in turn, was reacting by happening to other characters. My problem with the detective is that he's an uninvolved outsider. And I think the only really perfectly constructed detective story I think I ever saw was a movie called DOA, mm -hmm. in, in which the main character has been poisoned yeah. and is going to die within 24 hours and has to find out who killed him who wrote that? before he died. It was an original screenplay. Oh, yeah, yeah. The doctor says, I'm sorry, Mr. Bigelow, you don't seem to understand. You've been murdered. Now, that's, that's a good motivation for a character. And it's certain, it certainly makes you sympathize with that character, you know? Right away, the character is in terrible jeopardy. He's, he's in an awful plight. And you sympathize with him because of the situation he's in before you even know who he is. I think that makes it much easier for those of us who write suspense fiction as opposed to those who write detective fiction. I envy people who can write good detective stories. I can't do it. Yeah, well, you can say that's, uh, see, uh, this is one of the things, the range of the suspense novel. I am the exact opposite of Brian in this case. What I want is the outside observer. This is what I want to happen. I want my character to be that way. The important people, are, uh, the important people for the story are all the ones he's investigating. But for me, the, the, the need to write from the outside is very important, and that's the opposite of Brian, which is fine. I'll make just one comment on DOA. I think it's probably one of the great plagiarized scripts yeah. in history. Everyone has used it. Oh, since. sure. Yeah. It's great. But it's just that we all write differently. I write, for example, of the lady who asked the question, I hope that I'm more modern than either Chandler or Hammett. I hope my detective has become more sophisticated. But at the same time, he's probably also grimmer. He probably things are considerably bloodier, uh, downbeat, pessimistic, and grim than they were in their day, because I think we live in a grimmer world than they did, actually. So my detectives, my books are pretty grim on that kind of thing, so it just depends. And as Charlie was in, implying, in essence, you can't make everybody read your book. You just can't please everyone. That's all there is to it. You have to find your audience. It's about as far as I can go on that. Anyone else? There's a lady here with a question up, or a comment. There are more women writers. Well, I don't know. I can tell you this, though. From what I've... The statistics, I believe, say that 80% of mysteries are read by women. Repeat. What? Repeat the question. Oh. <laughs> uh, there's four men here and two women. Is uh, all our debate, etc., largely the matter of uh, what the men write are read by men or what the women write are read by women, uh, that the hard-boiled is for men and that the Agatha Christie is for women? This is the question generally. As I understand it, most mystery, the greater percentage of the mystery market is 80% are women. Uh, Agatha Christie does outsell almost any hard-boiled, I would think. Um, 
There's more so, writers too, aren't there? More women writers? There are probably more women writers. But it does not necessarily stay that way. Uh, your Hammett, your Chandler, your McDonald obviously must go to some women. They sell a lot of copies. Uh, they probably sell as much as Christie, not over the long run, because she's got a lot more books. But in, ge in general, there probably is a difference, but it's probably not quite as big as it seems. Is my comment. Anyone else want to comment on that? I think there are more... There are more women who read More anything. women writers in the mystery field, almost, than in the general field, aren't there? There are more, I mean, there are more women who read, probably, in the country than yeah. men. I mean, writers, shot. too. She's thinking There's probably it. more women writers, yeah. Although, again, as Bill pointed out, so many of your, you would find out, so many of your romance writers are actually men. Yeah. Even though they use women's suits. Even Jean Francis Webb. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And they get a lot of acclaim. Uh, the comment was, women detectives are on the increase. Yes, they are. We have two right here. Uh, the private eye feel was essentially for men. And, well, there's Honey West and there were a few others earlier. The suspense field in general probably was a little less so, but probably was mostly men until fairly recently. Well, I don't know. Helen McInnes and, yeah. and uh, Phyllis yeah. Whitney and so Phyllis forth. Whitney, Dorothy like Helen Riley. Uh, Disney, Thomas Miles Disney. Yeah. There's been a lot of, there are a lot of female uh, mystery writers, probably a smaller percentage of detective writers. But still, again, the readership, it's hard to say. I know that more women read books, and the English mystery does better than the American. So I can, it's the closest And all private eyes are men. There are very few stories about war by women either. You know, I mean, Not it's men, a man's they, field, they're the they're private eye. Yeah. Uh, yeah. May I take a quick uh, quiz at the panel? How many know, as you start hey. to How many of us, when we start the book, know who the culprit is, the, the essential guilty Assassin. party? <clears throat> when, when, no, right when we start, before we even put down the first word. Tiana? Well, um, I can speak for my first novel. Um, I thought I knew who did it, and I got halfway through, and it turned out to be somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Brian? I have a couple of friends who insist that... that uh, when they start the book, they don't know anything about where it's going because if, if they don't know where it's going, the reader certainly can't know and is bound to be surprised by it. I personally need to know how the story is going to end before I start writing it. That's the one thing I do need to know. I need to know who these people are and where are we going. Everything else is improvised. Um, for me, again, as I said, I write books essentially not to work out a puzzle. I write books as books that I have something to say, so of course I know what the ending is. It's very important to me. I must know the ending. I very often have the last sentence in mind, as beautiful as I can make it, <laughs> as right in mind. I almost always know who the culprit is. I have been fooled once or twice, that's all. Once or twice I have changed it along the way, but very, very rarely. Oh, I have to know. I mean, and for me, the whole reason for writing detective novels is because it is the discipline of laying out the plan and working backwards and, and knowing all the answers to all the questions. Uh, so I know from the beginning who done what and why it happened. Okay, Bill? I, I don't know how to pronounce that word. Media threat, is it called? I haven't the faintest idea. I don't even laugh at that. You know, you open in the middle of things, as though you pull the wall out and somebody's at the breakfast table talking and start there. That's the way yeah. I do it. I don't know who's going to kill whom or that when I start. Uh, I like to open with a narrative hook, something that gets the reader going. I don't mean the head I have a no one school. I mean just something which gets the reader's interest. And you better get them early because they're going to quit if you don't like the lady over there quit. Uh, from there on, sometimes you know, I know, sometimes I don't know. And sometimes it shapes up that this is not the proper person to be the killer. So I 
change that as I go along. I grew up learning to write. I had to write in order to eat. So you can't sit down and spend a week on a plot and then another week writing the short story. You couldn't make that much money. So I had to start with something that hooks the reader and go on from there. Start with an interesting premise. And it's conflict. Yep. We know that. And as for the private eye, I think the man they tried to make him the knight in shining armor, that's why he didn't seem to be the, the first, in the first, he's the first person narrator. And all the nice things to be said about him have to be said by other people. I know it's, a, it's, it's difficult at times because you know damn well, just like when you watch a movie, that the star isn't going to die unless it's a tragedy and they don't make too many of those. So that's why you can't it's difficult, and I think that's probably what Brian means. It's difficult to feel sorry for a person who you, whom you know is going to survive. Well, that's why you can't involve him, Bill, really. That yeah, you can't involve him. He's got to be an outsider. But he's got to have a reason to be, to be there. My reason today, I use vindictive retribution, which is a theme <laughs> I'm going on now. Uh, All short guys work on vindictive retribution. <laughs> uh, Charlie, the, the, the que back to the question of uh, do you know right. who's done it? Uh, yes, I, I have to know the ending. Uh, I tend to write toward my ending and meanwhile try to write away from the ending at the same time. But I, as I was thinking about that, uh, in the two books that are published, or one published, one will be, as I look back on them, I think I tried to tease myself mm. right up to very close to the end that I could switch it and nobody would know the difference. 